Pikeville has hillbilly days. There'd be 120,000 people in town, and the parade was always a massive thing. That's Janet Stumbo, the first woman elected to the Kentucky Supreme Court without a prior appointment to the job. In her roughly 30 years on the job, Janet campaigned at a lot of parades. We got the old convertible and we throw candy out and we wave and it's Judge Janet Stumbo, Court of Appeals. So they seen me that year. And one year in particular, at Hillbilly Days in Pikeville, Kentucky, when Janet was lining up her car for the parade, something caught her eye. And there's this huge float, well longer than this room, on the, the back of a flatbed truck. And there's a giant Statue of Liberty. She hadn't seen anything like that in Pikeville. Normally, the parade was made up of antique cars, golf carts, but what really stood out was the group of scantily clad women surrounding the giant float. In their red shorts and tight white t-shirts, riding on it, dancing, there's music playing, and they're throwing these t-shirts in the crowd. Janet wasn't trying to get her hands on a shirt, but she ended up with one anyway. And smack dab in the middle was a giant smiling face with a piercing glance and a toothy grin. It was a local attorney who dealt in disability law and social security benefits. His name was Eric C. Kahn, but he went by Mr. Social Security. And I was stunned that this was a law office advertisement. I mean... Can you think of anything less dignified? Eric was a stocky, bleach-blonde-haired man with perfect teeth. Well, they're actually veneers, and he got them on one of his trips to Thailand. He always wore a suit and a tie. And so everyone was trying to be Mr. Social Security, but he won out. He really smothered a lot of practices. And it turned on a faucet of money. But that's because there's one thing Mr. Social Security did that other attorneys didn't, at least that we know of anyway. Eric C. Kahn greased the wheels of the system, ultimately defrauding the government out of $550 million in the largest social security scam in American history. In 1935, Franklin D. Roosevelt put his signature on the Social Security Social Security Social Security Act. Hi, this is Eric C. Kahn. This is one of the craziest people who pulled off the biggest scam in the history of the Social Security Administration. If he couldn't help me, nobody could. I guess he perfected a way to screw the government more efficiently than everybody else did. Everybody who came to see him got their benefits and they got them quickly. I thought he was helping me. But at that time, he wasn't doing nothing but really fucking me. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, just being honest. <laughs> Everybody knew Eric Kahn was Mr. Social Security. From Fun Meter, I'm James Lee Hernandez. And I'm Brian Lazarte. We're the executive producers and directors of the new four-part documentary series called The Big Con on Apple TV+. And to really help with your weekend plans, all four episodes are available to binge right now where available. And this is The Big Con, the official podcast from Apple TV+, a companion piece to the documentary series 
of the same name. But this isn't like your traditional companion podcast, is it, James? No, it isn't. For this, we brought on a team of native Kentuckians to help write and produce the show with us to create a whole new experience than what you'll get in the doc. If you watch the doc series, you'll recognize some familiar voices, but you'll also meet some new ones. You'll hear some scenes from the show, but we'll expand on those moments as we go. We certainly encourage you to watch the series first, but if you haven't watched the series, that's okay. Because this podcast is actually designed to stand on its own. This is episode one of six, The Con Man. When you're driving around eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, highways are a little different. They're not interstates. When they're winding through the mountains, sometimes they're barely even roads. It's peaceful there. It's quiet. Well, almost a little too quiet. Decades ago, this place kept the lights on for the rest of the country. The coal mines were its heart and soul for more than a century. But all that's gone now. And what's left are billboards. Dozens of them. Saying stuff like, Winning cases is no accident. Call Ned today. Are you injured? Do you have a black lung? But 10 years ago, all those billboards said the same thing. Call Eric C. Kahn, a.k.a. Mr. Social Security. And that's why we were there, to talk about that attorney. He was kind of a celebrity around these parts. I mean, everybody knew Eric C. Kahn. You couldn't miss him. And not just because he had 150 canary yellow billboards. Let's roll a scene from the series. The town loved him and the people loved him. He was a phenomenon. There were kids that wore Eric Kahn shirts to school. We laughed at him, you know, but everybody wanted to meet him. He was Robin Hood. I mean, he got people money. If you saw Eric Kahn at the grocery store, people know about it. It's like seeing Mick Jagger. If you would have stopped 10 people on the street here in Eastern Kentucky and say who's the president, probably nine would know. All 10 would know who Eric Kahn was. There are a lot of things about Eric C. Kahn that you didn't normally see in Eastern Kentucky. Like a giant replica of the Lincoln Memorial statue that sat in his parking lot, just outside the Legoland complex of welded-together trailers. You also wouldn't normally see a 3D TV commercial or a 15-foot-tall mannequin of Eric C. Kahn himself waving at you as you drove by his billboards. But the real reason everyone knew Eric Kahn was because he offered a life raft to so many people getting Social Security benefits faster than anyone else. American working heroes suddenly unable to work, but with a rugged spirit fighting against one of the largest government agencies in the United States. We get the job done. The Eric C. Kahn Law Firm. We went to Eastern Kentucky to hear about Eric Kahn. Now, along the way, we learned about porn stars, corrupt judges, envelopes of cash, people being spied on. And we really came away wondering, who is to blame for everything that happened? Eric did some bad things, but Eric helped a lot of people, too. That's Becky Rose. You won't see Becky in the documentary series because it took us a while to convince her to actually talk to us. But she used to work for Eric back in his heyday. Okay, is my language important here? No. No. Okay, 
Eastern Kentucky wasn't a bad place to be a social security benefits attorney. In fact, it was one of the best places. In the early 2000s, when Eric was ramping up his practice, Kentucky was the second most reliant on the social security fund. The reason that things were the way they were can be attributed in in many ways to the bureaucracy of trying to claim social security disability benefits. They make it impossible for the everyday man to be able to fight through that process. So it made someone like Eric necessary. Every taxpayer contributes a portion of their income to the social security fund. But if you get injured and can't work, it's pretty tough to get approved to receive disability. Just about everybody who applies for social security disability benefits gets turned down the first time and a second time. So the next step is to file an appeal in court and wait for a hearing with a judge, which can take more than 18 months. That could mean going almost two years with no income. And that's even if you get benefits at all. And a lot of people never actually get them. But Eric Kahn could get people their benefits. He promised it. And he could get them faster. And in eastern Kentucky, people needed those benefits. What's so different about that area? Well, I mean, if you want to invite me up onto my soapbox, I will gladly step up and tell you that the the reason for that is big coal. Big coal is the reason that half of our workforce is decimated. And, you know, young men in their 30s and 40s are completely disabled from any sort of work. Coal mines are dangerous. and, and, And we end up with young men who are fully disabled and, and they come out of the mines and they're not qualified to do anything else. A lot of people turned to Eric Kahn. Sometimes he had 50 or more clients over two days. Eric liked keeping busy. He could make up to $6,000 per case. By 2010, his business was so successful, he became the third highest paid disability attorney in the nation, raking in millions from the Social Security Administration. But he helped more than just his clients, including being the largest employer in Pikeville. Well, if you can get in and you can stay in. <laughs> that, that was the key. It wasn't even the getting in. He'd let anybody come in the door. Um, but if you could stay, then yes, it could change your future. It changed my entire life. In 2011, Becky Rose was waiting tables at a restaurant when she got the call from Eric Kahn's office about a staff position. She wasn't a trained law professional, but neither were most of the people he hired. Becky started as an assistant right away. On her first day in the office, her new boss, who she'd seen on billboards all over town, wasn't who she was expecting. I was training and he walks past the the office where I was sitting and he looks at me and he looks at somebody else and says, who is this girl and why is she not making me money? And I was terrified of that man. I was terrified of him. Eric always wore a suit. Plus, he was a member of the Certified Genius Club, Mensa. He was definitely an imposing figure to Becky with high expectations and strict rules. He didn't trust just anybody. And Becky was about to find that out firsthand. 
there was a ban on cell phones in his office. He did not want any cell phones in his office, nobody taking pictures, things like that. And we were in an office meeting one day and mine was in my, my handbag and it started vibrating. And I think he could tell it was mine because he kind of singled me out. And he had asked me a question. I don't even remember what the question was, but I remember responding back to him, make it so, number one. Make it so, number one. So with a Star Trek reference, and I had no idea he was a huge Star Trek fan, but he was. And so that saved me. <laughs> that saved my life. And so he was like, well, I like this girl. And that day he moved me from just, you know, working up social security claims into his pet project, which he called Nationals. Um, basically, he was just trying to expand all over the country as far as representing social security claimants. Eric had this way of, um, he's very charismatic and charming. He just had this way of making you feel like you could do anything. Over the next few weeks, Eric started coaching Becky on tricks of the trade. She became one of Eric's best schmoozers. When he had a dinner with someone important, he brought Becky. When he wanted to impress someone, Becky was there. And she didn't mind. She got to see the world. I traveled all over the place. I, I, I got to a point where I kept a bag packed because I never knew when he was gonna say, hey, I just put you a plane ticket to some crazy destination to pull off some crazy thing that he wanted. But I would just, just all shucks my way right on in the door. <laughs> you know, oh, hi, I'm Becky and I'm from Eastern Kentucky and I work for Eric C. Con, you know, and, and just uh, somehow or other they'd always let me in. I don't know. <laughs> Eric taught Becky a page right out of his own book. And I mean that literally. If you've been watching the documentary series, you know all too well that Eric shared his unpublished manuscript with us. Here's one of those excerpts. I started getting over 10 new clients per day. My success in the field was becoming widely known. Some even called me a marketing genius. My natural flamboyance contributed to the public image of my success. It was not long before I realized that when people think you are successful, magically you become more attractive, more witty, more admirable. He, he had that grandiose idea of himself. And I was a sidekick, like I had it too. Becky liked being a part of the Eric Kahn world. But most of all, she just liked Eric. I remember one time driving his, driving his Mercedes up the interstate, I got Cheetos and I'm doing like 90 miles an hour and he's like, you gotta feed those to me, Becky. I can't get the cheese dust on my hands. So I'm driving down the interstate in his car, feeding him Cheetos. <laughs> I would always tell him that he had um, a, a clinical form of risk addiction. Becky hadn't known Eric for a very long time, but she already knew that he liked to push the envelope with work or play. He wasn't really a uh, by-the-book kind of a guy, but he sure knew the book by heart, especially when it came to disability law, and that meant Becky had to know it too. I would read the legal publications on, on Social Security Disability. I read that stuff so thoroughly that I knew every rule and every... Um, 
loophole and and, and then some. Um, but Eric made sure we read those things and he made sure that we kind of knew where the boundaries were. And she knew Eric liked to use those loopholes whenever possible. Nothing that we could do would ever be good enough unless there was some little shady aspect in there that um, that he thought he could, he was, you know, somehow getting away with something somewhere. There was no way for Becky to know how right she was about that, or at least didn't care to know about it at the time. I mean, she and Eric were best friends after all. There was always this whisper going on in the background that I thought was really kind of sketch, but you couldn't put toilet paper between us. So whatever. Um, I'll just bob around and do my job, and, you know, I was pretty happy just doing that. Becky might not have known much about those whispers, but there were two women 70 miles north who knew a lot about them. In fact, they were the reason for them. Sunny day, chasing the clouds away. To where the eyes are clear. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? <laughs> Jennifer Griffith and Sarah Carver worked at the Social Security office in Huntington, West Virginia. While they were there, the Sesame Street song became a bit of an inside joke between them. One of the things in federal government is there's a sunshine law where it's trying to shine the light on corruption and fraud in government agencies. Every year it's called Sunshine Week. And so we always made a joke that when it was Sunshine Week that we would sing Sunny Day's theme song from Sesame Street. We found it very funny that people within the federal government committing fraud were expecting us to read and acknowledge that we have been told about Sunshine Week. It just seemed funny that they were committing fraud, but asking us to read a thing about reporting fraud, but then yet never acknowledging that we reported it. Really from the beginning, we knew that if there was anyone who was intimately familiar with Eric Kahn's fraud, it was Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith. So we met Sarah and Jennifer. It was the summer of 2020 in Eastern Kentucky. The humidity was not quite Miami thick, but it was Eastern Kentucky thick. And we met at Sarah's house and uh, it was a small little farmhouse. that was off one of these side roads. We show up and like, it was this incredible welcome party. Chloe, no. She rarely barks, so. <laughs> we were in the height of the pandemic. Everybody was masked. Everybody was nervous okay. about getting COVID being out doing this production. And we, we you know, we kind of knew who, who they were at this point because we'd spent a lot of time talking with them on the phone. But when we walked in to Sarah's house, we honestly had no idea what we were about to experience in the days that followed. What do we got here? What we have here is a board that we prepared because this case has lasted so long. And we're very visual people, and so it may—it was very hard for us to think of a way to explain who was who without some sort of structure. They had stayed up till four in the morning the night before to create a FBI-style murder board of how everyone in the office was connected to this fraud somehow. It was like we just got hit with a fire hose of information. And they even included people who were tangentially or just on the fringes of being connected. 
And many of them were never indicted, had never faced any legal problems at all, but they were somehow involved either by being part of it or turning a blind eye to it. So we really had to walk through this minefield of who we could talk about, what we could show, and how we could really portray and expose this entire fraud without <laughs> indicting the unindicted. This was like taking it to a whole other level. Like we felt like we were speaking with like the lead investigators of a 20 year crime who had all the evidence on the table, who had all this intimate knowledge. And frankly, it, it was quite overwhelming. Um, I remember that first day just feeling like, what the hell? How are we gonna even make sense of this? It was just nonstop gold nuggets of things that were extremely important to the story. And they're really an interesting pair. In a certain way, they're the odd couple. First of all, Sarah is almost six foot and Jennifer is five foot. So physically, when you see them, you already see the, the height difference. They are very sweet, very kind, but um, they're very passionate. And the passion really is led by Jennifer. I did not almost kill you. Um, Sarah and I are, are both, you know, fairly vocal people, and we will argue like we're going to kill each other. Well, like we're sisters. Yeah. And Sarah also quite, quite passionate, but at the same time, she's a little more laid back than Jennifer. I mean, I could be laying on the beach and Jennifer's calling me. And then I can't get a hold of her half the time, so I know... They've been friends far before they worked in Social Security together. So they have this hilarious banter between the two of them. I mean... And we took it outside multiple times multiple and it times never went anywhere. And the, and the fact that they, like, they talk over themselves... But this time, but this at one some time point, it did, at some point it did. They finish each other's sentences. To, to deal with the agency. To deal with the agency. Like, they don't stop at all. And what they were able to show us is, as crazy as Eric Seacon's story is, he was just one tiny piece of this huge iceberg of a problem. In 2001, before Sarah Carver and Jennifer Griffith's lives would be upended, they were excited about their futures. They saw a career with the Social Security Administration as an opportunity that would change their lives for the better. I had set my sights on that yeah. job. That's Sarah. I had a friend that worked over there, and I kept checking in with her. I kept checking USA Jobs. I kept emailing the hearing office director. By the time I got an interview, she had a file on me, probably about an inch thick. And so when I interviewed, I was told they were hiring more people. So I called Jennifer and she applied for the job. Actually, she filled out my application. Yeah. Social Security was technically under a hiring freeze, but they opened it for 24 hours and closed it. So you literally had a day to do it. It was a long shot. At this point, Sarah and Jennifer had only known each other for about a year while working as paralegals at the same law firm in a small river town in northeastern Kentucky where they both were in their 30s, both moms, and they both wanted better jobs. So she got an interview and she called me and she was like, can you let me know what you put on my application <laughs> in case they ask? No one was more shocked to get the call than me. Sarah and Jennifer both got hired at Huntington, West Virginia's Social Security office. The office was 10 miles from Kentucky's border and about two hours from Eric's law complex, 
Let me tell you, getting these jobs were the answer to a lot of their problems. To give you perspective, it it went from making under thirty thousand to almost sixty, and that was just a huge jump in income, and you couldn't match that anywhere else. I mean, my life just changed. Um, I was a single mother. I didn't worry about how I was going to pay my house payment or how I was going to buy school clothes. To us, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. They got off to a great start at the Huntington, West Virginia Social Security office. You know, 2001, two, three, four, five, um, you know, I was getting awards at least two a year, sometimes three a year. Each evaluation went really good. But that would all change. In 2005, the office began transitioning from paper files to an electronic filing system. Jennifer's job was to enter all of the incoming cases into this new system. That's when she noticed some of the cases were disappearing and Jennifer's supervisor accused her of making mistakes. And eventually it got to the point to where my supervisor was just constantly on me and threatening to write me up. I had to have job retraining because I was doing so poorly at my job. Typically, cases were filed away for 18 months as they waited to be assigned to a judge. But the cases that were disappearing had only just come in the door. It wasn't long before Jennifer got to the bottom of where they were going. Administrative law judge David B. Doherty was taking them. And it just so happened that all the cases came from the same attorney. Here's an excerpt from the series. Then we caught a fax coming in from Eric Kahn with an actual list of cases. We started to check those social security numbers and see. And those were cases that Darty had taken from me and assigned to himself. I just had enough. I went to Judge Darty and I asked him, are you removing cases and deciding favorable? And he said, yes. These other judges take forever. I can get a favorable done much faster. These other judges act like it's their own damn money. I couldn't believe that he had admitted that to me. Based on those lists coming in, he was awarding benefits to all of those claimants without holding a hearing. I said, you have to stop. After that conversation with Judge Doherty, he went and talked to my supervisor about me coming to him because he was mad about that. And then it never stopped. Here's something you need to understand. The Social Security Administration had a massive backlog issue nationwide. A big factor was the choice to shrink federal funding for welfare programs in the mid-90s. Instead of the federal government funding welfare, now the states had to fund their own programs. This incentivized certain states to sign more people up for disability benefits. Because that money comes from federal tax dollars. Then in Kentucky, it was even worse. Jobs around the coal industry were drying up. Without easy access to reliable work, some people had to reckon with injuries they used to ignore. Both of those things sent cases through the roof. 
which had the entire Social Security Administration pressuring offices everywhere to get a handle on the high volume. One office had an exceptional performance. It was the Huntington, West Virginia office, where Judge Doherty outshined them all. Doherty had worked there since the 90s, after being a circuit court judge. His white beard matched his white hair, but his age did not slow him down. He was in every musical the town put on, a regular on the karaoke scene. I mean, he was basically like local royalty, and he knew it. He was known to be a bit demanding, a little bit prickly, but up until that point, he was actually nice to Jennifer and seemed to care about her. I won't say he was kind to everyone, but he and I had no problems. Judge Darty made sure to always call and ask how I was, and if he didn't see me, he would ask Sarah how I was. He bought my daughter beautiful layette set and quilt uh, when she was born. And that's why it was so it was so hard because the person that was doing this, I genuinely liked quite a bit. Jennifer couldn't unsee the issue Doherty was causing. Every time he broke protocol, she reported it to her supervisor. When the boss didn't do anything about it, she ran it up the chain. And yet, the only problem they seemed to have was with Jennifer. Prior to uh, reporting uh, Judge Darty's misconduct, I had never had an unsuccessful progress review. Then all of a sudden, and then you couldn't sudden, do your job, and you needed more training. And, and I needed to see a counselor. Oh, yeah. It was retaliation for her reporting what she was doing about, about Darty. Once Jennifer started getting in trouble with management instead of Judge Doherty, she got her union rep involved, Sarah. The more they reported the problems, the more problems it created for themselves. And how it kind of it worsened and how we knew it was retaliation because once I started filing the grievances for her, because it, they started immediately, once I started filing the grievances, the same thing they were doing to her, they started, they started doing, to doing to me. It was like going to work in a war zone every day. You didn't know from one day to the next whether you were gonna be investigated for something. You didn't know whether you were gonna be reprimanded for something. You didn't know if your supervisor was gonna take that day to just follow you around and do everything. They would time how long I spent in the bathroom. They would time how long it took me to mail an envelope, time how long it took me to print letters. It would time all aspects of my job. I already had high blood pressure, but by the time I got to 2007, I was on three and two different anxiety medications. I couldn't sleep at night. I lived in fear of going to work. But if her supervisor could help it, Jennifer wouldn't be going to work much longer. And then at one point in her last evaluation, her supervisor looked at her and said, that her main goal was, was to, to make sure I was gone by gone the end of the year. By the end of the year. And that was two months away. Sarah had never met the man causing all this trouble in her office. Jennifer had only seen Eric Kahn once at a hearing, but they'd called his office so much that it felt like they knew his whole life story. The whole music you had to listen to, if you were talking to his staff, was usually a country singer, a known country singer, and a song that 
was about all him. about Eric and his life and how he grew up. So if you didn't know that he started off in a in a single wide trailer. Or you didn't know he was a member of Mensa, you learned that. You learned that. And at the end, they would tack on this message that we would like to welcome his newest wife to the Khan family. And it kept changing and we'd be like. We would put it on our speakerphone. You're not gonna believe this crap because it had changed in like a couple months time. Everyone in the Huntington SSA office knew Eric. And not just because of a suspicious relationship with Judge Doherty. Huntington was the closest office to Eric's practice. So they got most of his caseload. And he had so many clients, 60% of the cases in his whole office were from Khan. Sarah and Jennifer didn't know the full extent of the relationship between Eric and Judge Doherty. But they knew it was bigger than just an administrative law judge breaking off his protocol. If he was approving people for disability who weren't actually eligible, well, that's fraudulent. So why wasn't anyone doing anything about it? Sarah and Jennifer had a few ideas. We reported this to management between 2005 and 2011. But there's a problem with that. When you want to report fraud, you know who we have to report fraud to? Our supervisor. Our supervisor. And then when she denies it or he denies it, and they will deny it, then you report to your hearing office director. Which is your supervisor's supervisor. Yeah. And then when that person denies it, and they will, it'll go to the regional chief judge. And he was involved in it. He was involved. But even when it was a different regional chief judge, they still didn't do anything about it because it benefited that region. Sarah and Jennifer realized there was no one they could turn to, well, on the inside at least. The only reason this story even got outside of this mass, uh, this mass network network that we've got going on, the only reason it got outside is because we took it outside. Well, they certainly took it outside. Sarah and Jennifer tried to get attention everywhere else. Local newsrooms, TV stations, congressional leaders, governors. It took years until finally a reporter seven hours away in Washington, D.C. took notice. So when I was contacted, Damien Paletta, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, I sent her the Sesame Street song. So it's like code for, oh crap, something's happened. And she immediately called me. She said, what is going on? We have a Wall Street Journal reporter that is interested in our case. We had no idea that it would be a front page story less than a month later. They also had no idea the chain of events that story would set in motion. Here's an excerpt from the doc. This story is not one that I parachuted into, wrote, and then moved on to the next thing. It followed me home. And things got a lot more dangerous and scary. No one knew that years later, all hell would be breaking loose in Eastern Kentucky. The U.S. Attorney's Office, the Social Security Inspector General's Office, the U.S. Senate investigators, the FBI, all these people would descend on the case. 
there would be suicides, death threats, people's lives would be destroyed. And it would culminate in one of the craziest skate stories that I've ever heard. That's coming up on the Big Con Podcast. The Big Con, the official podcast, is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by FunMeter. And don't forget the entire four-part documentary series, The Big Con, is available to stream right now on Apple TV Plus, where available. This is episode one of six. New episodes will be out every Friday. The show is hosted and executive produced by us. I'm Brian Lazarte. And I'm James Lee Hernandez. Sean Cannon, Boyd Holbrook, Evan Miscogny, and Heather Schrering also executive produced and helped write our episodes. And Boyd Holbrook narrated Eric's manuscript moments. It was produced by Shannon Pence, our amazingly talented co-EP from the documentary series. The show is engineered and sound designed by the team here at FunMeter and mixed by Ben Freer. The music from our show comes from our documentary series and was written by Brian Tyler, Josh Zimmerman, Nate Alexander, and Sarah Trevino. Additional music by Pelman Music and Sound. And make sure to follow on Apple Podcasts. See you next week.